The visit of a uh, pope to the United States this week had a lot of people thinking and talking about the issue of faith. There were a number of news articles and discussions giving their take on the role of religion and why people in the modern age would be still fascinated with this thing that we called religion. One radio interview I heard with a so-called expert in the faith realm tried to explain faith to the radio host. He said, quote, a lot of people think that faith is the opposite of doubt. Faith is not the opposite of doubt. It's the opposite of certainty, end quote. Let me just tell you, that's not much of an expert, at least not when it comes to the Bible, what the Bible describes as faith, because certainty or assurance is right at the heart of faith, at least as it's defined by the Bible, I mean, Hebrews chapter 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The word there in Hebrews 11 for assurance is the Greek word hypostasis. It's the same word that the early church fathers chose to use when they were wanting to define the nature of Jesus. They wanted to say that he was of the same substance as God the Father. And so they picked up this word. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying that faith is not just hope. It is material substance to the one who has it. It looks at things which are not visible as if they are real. It is the real substance. That is what is behind the word certainty there. The writer of Hebrews also says faith is the conviction of things not seen. That's a word that's used uh, in other contexts for demonstrating or even proving something in the midst of a dispute. It's a legal term that was used in the court systems of evidence that you would present before a judge or a jury in the dispute of a matter. It was basically the data that presented to uh, a judge or a jury the proof of the facts of an issue. And so faith, he says, is the proof. It is the evidence that settles the question, the substance of what we hope for, the evidence of what we have not seen. Faith certainly isn't the opposite of certainty. Faith is certainty. Faith is certainty. Last week we began to see this demonstrated in the life of Abraham here in Romans chapter 4, he is the centerpiece of Paul's argument. Paul has been presenting him as the prototype of what a man of faith looks like, and particularly a man whose faith is counted as righteousness. Paul is wanting to drive home that particular notion in our minds in this chapter that faith, a certain kind of faith, a faith that Abraham had, was counted to him. It was credited to him as being righteous. He wasn't righteous by the things that he did. He wasn't righteous by the ceremonies he kept. He wasn't righteous by his heritage or his circumcision or any of those things. He was righteous because of what he believed and because of how he believed it. And this is the doctrine 
that Paul is laying out before us, the justification of men and women based on their faith. But Paul doesn't leave it at just that. He doesn't want to just tell us that it's, it's righteousness according to faith. He wants us to understand the kind of faith. And so really midway through the chapter, he hinges and transitions and takes us deep, not just into the fact that Abraham had faith, but the type of faith that he has. He, he plunges us into the specific world of Abraham, the challenges he faced, and how his faith manifested itself in the midst of that. And so what we've been doing is looking then at the character of saving faith, at least as it was demonstrated through Abraham, what this faith, if you will, of a real believer looks like. And specifically, Paul's highlighting for us five facets of saving faith that radiate through the life of of Abraham. You'll notice, as we said last week, uh, first of all, that faith is focused on the specific promises of God. This isn't just Abraham making a claim to whatever his, his whims led him to do. It isn't him going out there and naming and claiming something and calling that faith. This is specifically him responding to God. This is him putting his faith in the statement or specifically the promise of God. Paul tells us, or he makes mention here, that this was in the presence of God, that he heard God's promise, and that is what he responded to. We're not given the notion that Abraham went through his whole life, God audibly talking to him every day, God doing miraculous works in his life every day, and that's the way that faith was manifesting itself. No, his faith was manifesting itself in the very ordinary, mundane ins and outs of life, but all oriented around those promises that he heard. And so his faith there responds to the promises of God. Secondly, faith remembers the character of God. This is what gave those promises power. Paul says in verse 17, because he believed that God was the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. That's the statement both of God's power and God's willingness to fulfill what He promised. Every promise of God is effective because it is backed up by His character. It's backed up by His power. We hear the Word of God. We believe it because of the character of the one who gave it. Or another way to say that is we hear the testimony of Scripture and we believe the testimony of Scripture because of the credibility of the one who testifies. It's the credibility of the one who said it. I could stand before you and tell you that I'm going to do all these wonderful things for you in the future. I could sit down and make promises. I could claim uh, divine uh, uh, visitations and all those other things. I could make all those things, but that has no credibility, not in relation to God, but when God speaks it, not man, when God speaks it, it is certain It is substance. It is as real as the chair you're sitting on when God says it. And so Abraham and Sarah were promised a child well after their childbearing years. They were 75 years old when they hear this promise from God. They go on another 25 years almost. Abraham was 99 years old when finally the promise reiterated to him and he believed God. 
that he would still have a son. At 99 years old, he says in verse 19, Paul says that Abraham considered his own body as good as dead. He, he knew that he was past the procreative years. He considered his, his wife's deadness or the barrenness of her womb. She had gone her entire life without giving birth to any children, now well past those years of fertility, and yet he still believed that God, because of his character, because of his nature, was able to do all of these things, even bring about life from the deadness of their bodies. This is why faith in Abraham's life is such a paradigm for ours. It was a faith that had to believe that God would give life to the dead, which, as Paul says later in the chapter, is exactly what you have to believe. It is exactly what you have to believe. Or as he says later in Romans chapter 10, that it is he who believes that Jesus was raised from the dead and confesses him as Lord who will be saved. Those are the ones who are saved. We believe God to be the one who gives life from the dead. We believe he has the power to do it. We believe he has the faithfulness to do it. So faith, first of all, is operating in accordance to the specific promises of God. It's the character of God that is at the heart of it. Thirdly, Abraham's faith teaches us that faith must reject natural reason as the sole criteria for its understanding. Natural reason as the sole criteria for its evaluation. That's what he says, really, in essence, in verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he would be the father of many nations. Now, Abraham was not a man who was unaware of the natural challenges to what he was called to believe. He wasn't unaware of those kinds of difficulties as I said in verse 19, he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. He considered his own weaknesses. He carefully examined the inadequacy, if you will, of the material evidence for this, this promise of God. He pondered all of the available empirical information. And he was clearly aware of what visibly it all pointed to. It pointed to childlessness. It pointed to hopelessness. It pointed to broken promises by God. That's what the physical evidence pointed to. But as we said last week, that wasn't the only information Abraham was looking at. It wasn't the only facts he was considering because God had also spoken. Because that is a part of the equation for a believer. And he wouldn't make a judgment based on what he thought in terms of the world, or, or if you want to use philosophical terms, he wouldn't make a metaphysical uh, conclusion based on simply what he could see. He wouldn't make a judgment about the future simply based on the facts that were observable to him. He would calculate, along with all the other data, what God himself testified to. You see, the modern assumption is that you can only really believe what you can see, hear, touch, taste, or smell. The modern man believes the grass is green in the spring. They believe it more confidently than they believe any other philosophical truth because for them, that is the most real thing that they can experience. It's called, in technical terms, empiricism. 
empiricism. This is the empirical data that they can take in with their senses. And to a lesser degree, you can mix in with that rationalism, which the modern mind also leans on. Those are the things which aren't necessarily observable through the senses, but they can be deduced by logic or mathematics or, or, or something like that. But the real foundation of popular belief today is empiricism. And so the modern man believes if you, can, if you cannot perceive it or examine it in some way through those senses, the modern mind assumes that it is fantasy or simply speculation or at best uncertainty. And this is why or this is where the world around you classifies your religion. Fantasy and speculation. Because empiricism survives on what it believes, what it believes are the plain and simple facts. But that's not really the way life works. That's not really the way anyone really, really lives. That's not the way we come to know things. Do we know and believe things only after we have had a chance to examine and verify every one of them? Of course not. There are many things in life that people claim to know and believe, and they must know and they must believe in order to live each day. You you don't have to personally go out and check out every one of those things. You don't have to personally go out and verify all of those things There are things you believe and accept without having personally even experienced them or visibly even seeing them. There are truths about everything from ancient history to nuclear particles to medical research to communication technology, which you yourself have not verified, and yet you claim to know it. You claim to believe it. You don't independently go out there and check all those things. You couldn't possibly do all that. And if you tried to verify every so-called fact in the modern age, you would then need to verify whatever method or instrument or book that you use to verify that, which in turn would need its own verification. And what you would have is verification of your verification ad infinitum. Now, the reality is we know a lot of things that aren't necessarily known empirically. But we accept them. Why? Because we believe they are based on credible testimony. Because the people who give us the information, we believe, are credible. In some cases, it is your parents, and then you turn 12, and it's no longer them, right? And then you go out and you find other people who say the same things your parents said, and then you believe it, right? That's the way life goes. But you hear teachers, you hear scientists, you hear reporters, you hear all these people, and they, they, they give you testimony of the way things are supposed to be and the way things are supposed to work, and you believe it because you believe that they have credibility. Forget the fact that many of the so-called facts that are presented time and time again are themselves open to interpretation. Historical facts, scientific facts, even sometimes mathematical equations 
are open to interpretation. Those facts sometimes lead in different directions based on presuppositions, sometimes based even on cultural experiences. And then there are some things that seem obvious to us, but they're not verifiable by observation. For example, we might say that all men are mortal. You might consider that to be a fact, that all men die, but you couldn't independently verify that. That goes beyond your ability to independently observe. There are six billion people on the earth. There are billions of people who were born in the past, more who will be born in the future. You couldn't possibly experience by seeing, touching, tasting, or whatever it might be, you couldn't possibly experience all of those people in your own capacity. And so what do you rely on? You rely on testimony. And you consider the testimony to be credible at some level. And people even come along and say, no one could be raised from the dead. No person could be raised from the dead. Why do they make such statements? Because in their limited experience and the people that they've chosen to believe as their witnesses have told them that. Because they rely on the testimony of others. Same thing's true about all kinds of truth statements that people base their life on. But for believers, the key testimony in our evaluation of the life and the world is God. He's the key one who testifies to us. He says things about life. He says things about humanity, about mankind that mean more to us than all the testimony of men and women. And because unlike men and women, God has experienced everything. He has observed everything. He does know everything. What he says is true and always will be true. And more importantly, unlike mortal man, he even knows the future. And so he can make statements about the future and we can trust it. And so this was Abraham's faith. In hope, he believed against hope. He believed against all the doubters, against all the people who were going through their life based simply on what they could see in their limited experience. And they would tell him, that's crazy, don't you know that people at your age don't give birth to children? And he would say, yes, I know I've experienced that, but there's other information that I'm factoring into this. And particularly, it is what has been told to me, he says. In hope, he believed, verse 18, against hope that he would be the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He had empirical knowledge. He understood his body, verse 20 says, and the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He knew the physical evidence, but that's not all he relied on. He understood the testimony of God, and that was in itself valuable in his assessment of reality. His faith was as good as substance. It was the conviction of things that weren't even seen yet. We're going to add to that today. Number four, 
that saving faith is also a faith that progressively grows through challenges. Saving faith is a faith that progressively grows through challenges. Paul says it there in verse 20, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Abraham didn't allow his personal experience, his life experience, his outward circumstances, excuse me, his outward circumstances to loom in his mind, to compromise his trust. He continued to yield his heart to God and his faith grew strong. There are some of you here today who maybe for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time, you have been challenged in your faith. You've come face to face with the real questions of life. The questions about whether or not this whole thing about God and about the Bible and about Christianity and about the resurrection are real. You are in the midst of a test. You're in the midst of a trial. And what, what Paul's telling us here is that when Abraham faced that trial, what confirmed the genuineness of his faith was that it didn't falter, it didn't compromise. In fact, through every trial, it grew stronger. Because that's what genuine faith does. Jesus tells us a parable about the Word of God sown as a seed and it goes out and it falls on various kinds of soil and one of the soils is a rocky soil and there is in its maybe youthful zeal, in its, in its uh, temporal nature, there is a kind of faith that sprouted up quickly but it faded just as quickly. Why? Because it came under the heat of the trials of life. It faced life and it faded away. But for true faith, it grows. It becomes stronger and stronger. Why? Because it's during those times of difficulty that true faith draws closer to God. Because this is what demonstrates whether or not you know God. When you face those trials, when the questions are coming to your mind, you don't falter or fail. You run to God. And when you run to God, that's what strengthens your faith. It might be stretched. It might be strained, but it doesn't fail because it faces the test. It passes the test and it always grows stronger. Paul commends the Thessalonian church, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, because their work of faith, that's the phrase he uses, the work of faith is known everywhere. They had faith, it was an active and vibrant faith, but by the time he writes 2 Thessalonians, they were confronted, they had been confronted, I should say, by persecution, and Paul then writes to them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, that he was giving even more thanks because their faith was growing abundantly. It wasn't just the work. It wasn't just the vibrancy. It wasn't just the participation in a church and in some activity that caused their faith to grow abundantly. It was the persecution. That's what happens to genuine faith. When it faces difficulties, someone comes along to you in the midst of all your struggles and all your difficulties and says, man, you're going to lose everything. 
You've been, you've been following this God thing. You've been following this Bible thing. And here you are, and it's not working out so well for you. You're going to lose everything. And the challenge comes to your faith. And what does faith do? It doesn't collapse. It draws near to God. The more difficult life becomes, the greater your confidence in God is that He is faithful, that He is trustworthy, that He is good, that He's perfect. And it just grows. Like Job's faith. When Job faced difficulty, when he faced trial, when he had a wife telling him to curse God and die. And a lot of people coming along and telling him that, that his understanding of God and God's character was all wrong. His faith didn't waver. And in the end, after the testing, it was strengthened. Or like Paul who had a thorn in the flesh and he drew near to God and he pleaded with God for deliverance and God didn't deliver him from the struggle but God taught him that the grace of God is sufficient and that God's power is perfected in weakness and Paul was strengthened to be able to endure that trial. 1 Peter 1 verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you're being grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through the testing by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. So you, 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 you go through the testing, you go through the difficulties, you go through the challenges. People confront you with what they think are the empirical uh, uh, evidences against everything you believe they throw in your face all the the struggles of your life and all the stumbling and all the trials they throw all that stuff in you and you feel your knees to begin to buckle and you go back to God and you are strengthened if you're a genuine believer you're not the rocky soil you're not the rocky soil now this was Abraham verse 20 No unbelief made him waver. But he grew strong in his faith. As the years of waiting wore on. And no doubt the mockery as he was in his tent and he was a merchant of sorts. People would have come through. Abraham's name, I don't know if you know this, means the father of multitudes. That's what the name means. And you can just imagine um, people coming to Abraham's tent and saying, hey, you know, just passing through here, going on our way to Egypt or whatever. I'm so-and-so. What, what's your name? Oh, I'm Abraham. Oh, Abraham, the father of multitudes. Uh, and, and who are your kids? Don't have any. You can just hear the, the giggles, the laughs, the snickers. Oh, the father of multitudes with no children. Oh, the conqueror, victorious, the Christian. The one whose Lord is the king of the universe. The one who's supposedly worshiping a good God. The one who has hope for the future. The one who has all the truth. Oh, you're the, you're the, you're the mighty one, huh? As they cry out to you down in your pit of despair, whatever it might be. Abraham was there. 
all these waiting years, the promise of God seemed more and more far-fetched as it went along. And Abraham just drew closer and closer to God. He believed God more and more and more. And the strength of his faith was manifested in two ways. First of all, Paul says, he gave glory to God. He glorified God's name. He wasn't ashamed. He wasn't ashamed of God's name. He began to see more and more opportunities to exalt God, to magnify God. And Paul doesn't seem to have a specific incident in mind. He seems to be speaking in general. The longer Abraham went into his journey with God, the more difficulties he faced or the more difficult it was to even maintain his faith, the more careful he was to give glory to God. When people question his faith, when they question God's promise, Abraham didn't shy away from magnifying God and his faithfulness, but he boldly proclaimed his trust in him. He glorified God. And so, secondly, Paul says the strengthening of his faith was also evident, not only the fact that he glorified God, but that he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That word convinced is literally a word for bearing some, something, for carrying something and the full weight of it. It combines the, the, the idea of carrying and the word of, uh, of fullness. And so as he, as he went along, he was able to carry more and more of the weight and the burden of his responsibility in trusting and believing and glorifying and magnifying God. And as faith grows, he can carry more and more of the weight of the difficulties and the challenges and the test. And all along the way, he gives glory to God so that finally, finally in the end, when God gives him this miraculous child uh, who's born to him, this wonderful blessing that comes to him in Isaac, God turns around and says, now I want you to take Isaac up to a mountain. I want you to stretch him out on an altar and I want you to raise your knife and take his life. Abraham did it. Abraham did it. The story is told that General Robert E. Lee entered into the courthouse in Appomattox to face his conqueror. And uh, the first thing that was uh, said to him was, hand me your sword. He dutifully took off his sword and handed it over to General Grant. And uh, having done that, Grant handed it back to him and said, now go home. You know, sometimes that's the way it is with God. We imagine, you know, we're handing over all these horrifying, you know, realities of what it might mean for us to trust God. And most of the time, God returns to us not just those things that we give up, but many blessings over and above. Many blessings over and above. Abraham handed over his blessed son and he became the paradigm of faith for all time. Thankfully, that's not where faith has to start. Thankfully, that's not what God demands from the very beginning. 
but it's what He grows us into. It's the way He stretches us and carries us through every one of those trials until finally, somewhere down the road, we're able to bear the weight of whatever's thrown at us. Abraham was fully convinced in the end. Fully convinced that God was able to do what He promised to do. Even even Hebrews 11 says, even if it meant taking the life of His Son, He believed that God was able to raise Him up again. Fifthly, saving faith then, this kind of faith, this is the kind of faith that is counted as righteousness. That's the fifth facet of Abraham's faith. This is is the faith that's counted as righteousness. And ultimately, this is what Paul wants to highlight. Because he had this kind of genuine faith, the faith that he talked about really from verse 17 on, Paul says there in verse 22, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because... Because his faith was focused on the promise of God, because it understood the character of God, because it it wasn't built on mere human speculation and wisdom, because it was growing through every trial, it was giving evidence of genuine faith, that is the kind of faith that proves to be genuine, that is the kind of faith that saves. Paul says that because he knows as well as anybody that there is a false faith. He understands as anyone that there are people who in whatever environment they might be in from a church standpoint, family standpoint, school standpoint, who think at some point in time they might believe in God, but then their faith is tested and they fall away. They don't know God. They've never experienced God. Whatever they think they knew about God, they know only from a distance. They don't know Him personally. But this kind of faith, this is true faith. This is genuine faith. And genuine faith is saving faith. You may be deceived with whatever kind of false faith you have. You may think it will save you one day. But Paul says this is why he was counted as righteousness. Because he had this kind of genuine faith. Now Paul's purpose isn't telling us just some ancient story of faith. His whole point is to teach that the nature of true saving faith hasn't changed. It's still the same as he says in verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. This is the kind of faith, in other words, that's demanded of you. It's not a faith necessarily that God's going to give a child to a a barren wife of yours or, or, or a child to you if you're barren. Instead, it is a faith in a Savior who was raised from the dead. As Paul says there in verse 23, it will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the central demand on you today. This is the central demand on your life today. That you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. The one who does, the one who confesses Jesus as Lord and believes that God raised Him from the dead will be saved. 
to believe that Jesus was raised on the dead, to believe based on the credibility of the apostles, the credibility of the testimony of God's word, to believe that God's word is more credible than anything you will ever hear from the materialistic and secular and limited and, and, and sometimes arrogant world around you that thinks that it knows everything when it doesn't. We believe that Jesus was not only crucified, but He was raised bodily from the grave. And He lives forever. The Bible's unmistakably clear about that. The death of the cross was a demonstration of God's wrath against sins. This is what Paul means in verse 25, that He was delivered over for our transgressions. It was a demonstration of God's wrath. It was effectual, certainly, in taking God's wrath, and it was a demonstration of just how wrathful God was, that He was willing to pour out His wrath on His Son, that He was willing to pour out His wrath on the innocent one. It was a demonstration that no sacrifice, no lamb, no bull, no pigeons, no anything like that would ever be sufficient to take the wrath of God, that it had to be a perfect and spotless lamb who would take the wrath. And so God demonstrated just how evil sin was by the magnitude of the sacrifice that had to be given. And then the resurrection displays God's acceptance of the sacrifice. He was raised up for our or because of our justification. You know what? If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, if you believe in some form of Jesus where he maybe is some ancient figure, but he was dead and buried like everyone else, it would mean one undeniable fact that death is still undefeated. That death is still reigning. It's It's still holding people captive. And since death is the result of sin, since death is the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death, the Scripture tells us, it would mean that sin is still reigning. But by that one magnificent reality, that one magnificent fact that God raised a man from the dead and he lives today, it is evidence not only that death no longer reigns, but obviously sin doesn't reign either. Sin has been defeated. This is what Paul means when he says he was raised for our justification. He was raised because of the fact that God had accepted his sacrifice. He was raised to demonstrate that righteousness and holiness and heaven and salvation can be received for even those who are under God's wrath. He was raised so that all those who believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Look, I don't know what you came in here believing today. I don't know why you believe what you believe. I don't know who you're listening to. But I'll tell you one person you need to listen to. You need to listen to your maker. You need to listen to your creator. You need to listen to your judge. 
and you need to listen to your Savior. There are all kinds of people that are telling you what the future holds and where this world is going and what your life ought to be about, but He's telling you through the testimony of His Word, and He is believable, that He sent a man into the world because you were under His wrath. And He sent him into the world to take the burden and the penalty of your sin. And He sent him into the world so that if you believe in Him, then God credits your belief as righteousness for you, just as He credits your sin against Jesus Christ on the cross. And then God raised Him from the dead. And if you believe that, you believe the gospel. If you believe the gospel, you have faith like Abraham. If you have faith like Abraham, you'll see him and every other believer eternally in heaven. That's the message of Romans 4. It's the message of the gospel. It's a message for you to believe today when we close in a word of prayer in just a moment that you would respond finally to the testimony of God. That you would humble yourself and confess yourself the sinner and in need of a Savior. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for the Word that gives us the testimony of truth, for we would be lost without it, wandering, meandering through this world based on our own opinions and observations. But Lord, we know where that has led us. It has led us to misery, to depression, to sin, to shame and guilt. But Lord, through the darkness of our own way comes the shining light of your testimony, a testimony of love and forgiveness and a Savior. I pray, Father, that there are those who are here today that they would believe not the words of men, that they would believe the Word of God. That they would repent. They would call, come and offer their life to You. And when they do, Lord, they will receive from You so much more. Eternal life in the Son. May You work, Lord, according to Your good plan. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.